Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with the dear saints at Desert Springs Presbyterian Church. Thank your pastor and session for inviting me to come back. It's always good to be here. If you have your Bibles, if you'd open them to Romans chapter 5. We'll be looking at a text today, verse 12 through, what is it, 21. So if you would turn your Bibles there. You know, before I read the text uh, for today and pray, let me just refresh our memories about what Paul has told us so far in this marvelous letter to the the church in Rome. If you recall in Romans 1 and 2, the apostle tells us what our problem is. He tells us that our problem is sin. And that sin uh, estranges us from God. We've rebelled against God. Or as one of my mentors used to say, R.C. Sproul, he says, we've been very bad and God is very mad. (laughs) So that's one and two. In chapter three, Paul sets forth God's solution to our problem of sin. That is justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. He sets forth the atoning work of Christ And the importance of our trust in him alone as God's way of salvation. That's his solution to our sin problem. Then in chapter 4, Paul defends that particular view from Scripture. He shows that it's not something that we sort of thought up on our own, but it's actually an Old Testament idea that we're justified by grace through faith in Christ. And so in chapter 4, he demonstrates justification by faith from the Old Testament. And he tells us two stories, a story about Abraham and a story about David. Now in chapter 5, Paul begins to draw some implications from this glorious, glorious doctrine of justification. He tells us at the beginning of the chapter that because we're justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've been reconciled to him, and as a result, we need to have no fear of final judgment. We are secure in Christ. And then in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, Paul completes his account of justification by speaking of the way sinners are put right before God in Jesus Christ. And he gives us an illustration. He illustrates that one and only way of salvation by comparing what Christ did for sinners to what Adam did for, or maybe better, what Adam did to the entire race at the very headwaters of human history. Now, certainly there's big differences between Adam and Christ. But Paul says that there's also a likeness. There's a similarity between Adam and And Jesus Christ. And that likeness is in the way that what they did bears on other people. And so this paragraph, verses 12 through 21, it's kind of complicated. But it's of immense importance. Immense importance to a biblical understanding of reality. So turn there. I want to read the entire paragraph Romans 5, 12 through 21, and then we're going to concentrate on Paul's summary of the main theme of the paragraph in verse 21. So let me read this passage for us this morning. Let's pay heed to it. 
This is God's word for us today. Romans 5, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray and ask God to bless this passage. Our Father, we thank you for this word for us today. We pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit what you mean. For as, as deep and as profound as Paul's words are here, he wrote these words not to, not to impress us with his grasp of your ultimate truth, but to comfort us with that truth. And especially here with the reality of your amazing grace. As such, he meant to be understood. So by your spirit, help us to understand and to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, most of us of the Reformed persuasion have heard the term covenant theology. It's a term bandied about quite often in our circles. It's part of our DNA. But I think it's a term that's Widely misunderstood, and I think for entirely understandable reasons. It's used, it's used by different people to mean different things. To some, covenant theology means simply infant baptism. To others, it means a, it means a particular view of the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. But fundamentally, and I think originally, it means something else. You know, Bible readers, they, they, we hear the term covenant theology, and we naturally suppose that we're talking about all those covenants that are mentioned in the Bible. 
You know, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, and with Israel, the covenant with Israel at Sinai, King David, the covenant with King David, and so on. You know, what else would the term refer to? You know, and in fact, covenant theology eventually does make a great deal of those covenants. But in fact, those biblical covenants are not really what covenant theology is about, at least in the way the term is used by most Reformed theologians. You know, in fact, the covenants of covenant theology are never called covenants anywhere in the Bible. And not just like theologians to do something like that. You know, and what's more, they're very different things than the covenants the Lord made with Abraham or Israel or David. There are two covenants in covenant theology. The covenant God made with Adam and the covenant he made with his son, Jesus Christ. And in each case, the one man stands and he acts as a representative of a race of people. I was never true of Abraham. Abraham's faith didn't make all his descendants believers. Wasn't true of David. His faithfulness to his calling didn't make the kings that descended from him faithful as well. No, neither of these men represented and acted decisively for and in the stead of an entire community of people. We know they didn't do that. But Adam's fall meant the fall of every human being. His disobedience made all human beings who would come from him to be guilty sinners from the very beginnings of their lives. In other words, we come into this life not with a clean slate, but as sinners because of Adam's sin. And in a similar way, Christ's righteousness, his death on the cross, made Christ's people righteous before God and reconciled to God. So the consequences of the actions of these two real men, the two Adams, as Paul calls them over in 1 Corinthians 15, the first Adam and the last Adam, will unfold as people come to life in the world. But there is no escaping the result achieved by each people's representative. You know, the English Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he put this in a wonderful way. He put it in, actually, it was a very homey way back in the 17th century. This is what Goodwin said. He said that there are but two men standing before God, Adam and Christ. And these two men have all other human beings hanging from their belts. So it's, it's this view, based supremely, I think, on this passage in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, that all of God's dealings with mankind are in terms of these two representatives, the first in Adam, the second in Christ. In each case, the head acting on behalf and for the body. And I say it's this view of the history of mankind that is properly designated covenant theology. 
You know, the, the covenants of biblical history, you know, Noah, Abraham, Israel, David, and so on, they are then simply, they're the historical outworking, the progressive revelation of that salvation that was accomplished by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul lays out for us here in this wonderful passage in Romans 5. Now, we're not, we don't have time to develop you know, that any further this morning, but I really would commend you know, a much more detailed study of this covenant theology that Paul lays out for us here in these verses. Instead, let's do this. Let's just take a look at Paul's summary of this entire paragraph in verse, 30, verse 21. So just let me call your attention back to verse 21. You know, as Paul wraps up this section in verse 21, he sort of draws back a curtain. And in a highly imaginative and picturesque illustration... He summarizes for us the very essence of covenant theology by introducing us to two rival kings and their competing kingdoms. And the way he gets into this illustration is by personifying the power of sin on the one hand and the power of grace on the other. He compares these powers to two people, two monarchs, Two kings, if you will. The one king's a bad king. He's an autocrat. He's invaded our world and established ruthless control over all men and women. The end of this king's rule is death. Death for everybody. This king's name is sin. He came into the world through the man Adam. The other king is gracious. He's kind. He's come to save us from king's sin, bring us into a realm of eternal happiness and joy. The end of this king's rule is eternal life through Jesus Christ. And this king's name is grace. And so these two kings, they stand face to face. Each recognize the other as his enemy. They do battle. They go to war. And the struggle, it's, it's going on between them. The, the, that, that struggle, it's not only on the wide field of the world, but it's in the narrow confines of each of our hearts. Now, I want you to see, that's a pretty good illustration. Because I think it lays out for us a very important aspect of grace that maybe we might not have thought about before. I think this illustration tells us grace is much more than just an attitude. Grace is much more than just a thought. I think the illustration tells us that grace is, in fact, a power. It's a power which reaches out to save those who, apart from that power, will perish. What does that mean, Stu? That's a, that's a little confusing. Well, you all know I'm military, ex-military. Uh, to use this illustration of these two rival uh, kings, grace is basically an invasion. 
by a good and legitimate king of territory that's been usurped by a bad king. Now, we can't always see the battle raging between these two kings because it's a spiritual battle. It's not physical warfare. But the attack is very bit as massive and decisive as, for example, the invasion of the beaches of Normandy by the Allied forces as the turning point of World War II. You know the story. The Allied forces threw everything they had into that invasion. They won the day. From that point on, even though there were many battles left, left to fight, for all intents and purposes, the outcome of the, of the war was never in doubt. After D-Day, victory was assured. It may not be the best illustration, but I think in a similar way. Paul assures the Christians in Rome, and he assures us that God has thrown his entire weight behind grace. The final outcome for us is no longer in doubt. Now, we're going to have to fight many battles in this life. We're going to suffer some setbacks, but on the authority of sacred scripture, in the end, King Grace will triumph over King Sin. Victory is assured. That's what this verse says. I think that's the main point, the main theme of this whole paragraph. It's a good summary of covenant theology. So let me just, in the time that we have left, just put a little more flesh on that, on that idea. You know, as you look back through history, uh, all earthly kingdoms have a beginning. You know, the USA, United States, for example, came into existence in 1776 with our Declaration of Independence from England. We gained our independence through a military victory. Other kingdoms have come into existence through peaceful means. Well, what do you suppose was the origin of the kingdom of grace about which Paul is writing here in verse 21? When did it begin? When, when was it inaugurated? Well, the, the answer that the Apostle Peter gives us over in 1 Peter 1.20 is that this kingdom of grace was inaugurated before the creation of the world. And Peter is referring in that verse to this decision that was made in the eternal counsels of the Godhead in eternity past. To send God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, to be our Redeemer. Theologians often call this divine decision. They call it the covenant of redemption. I think it's a key part of covenant theology. And it took place before sin entered the world. In fact, it took place even before the world was created. Well, how did it happen? Well, in that eternal covenant, God the Father says, He said, I want to show the hosts of heaven the nature and the power of my grace. I'm going to create a world of creatures to be known as men and women. I'm going to let them fall into sin because of Adam's sin. I'm going to, I'm going to allow sin to reign over them, enslaving them by its power. 
leading them at last to physical death and spiritual death. But when sin has done its worst, and the condition of the race seems hopeless, I'm going to send a heavenly being of infinite grace and power to rescue them, to usher in a new kingdom of grace. Who will go for me? Who will accomplish the salvation for these creatures? Well, the Lord Jesus raised his hand. He said, I'll do it. Send me. Here's what I'll do. I'll take the form of one of these creatures. I'll go and die for them. I'll die in their place. The innocent for the guilty. God for man. I'll bear the punishment of their transgressions. Then when I've paid the penalty for their sin so that they will never have to suffer for it, I will rise from the dead and be for them an ever-reigning and ever-gracious King and Lord. That's what happened. An agreement was sealed between God the Father and God the Son. A contract, a covenant was enacted to establish a kingdom of grace in which Jesus would die for a people whom God the Father would give to him. The Holy Spirit, who was also present at the inauguration of this kingdom, he covenanted to leave those whose God the Father had first chosen for this kingdom. He led them to faith in the crucified and risen Lord, by which alone they could enter it. So the kingdom of grace began with the Godhead before the foundation of the world. And over the years, that kingdom has grown. We've seen it unfold throughout history. It's the story of redemption. It's the story of redemption as recorded in the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We know God wasted no time in announcing this kingdom. On the same day that Adam and Eve sinned, God appeared in the garden to foretell the coming of his son and his atonement for these creatures. It's the first announcement of the gospel. You know, think Genesis 3.15. Take a look at that. And although Adam and Eve didn't understand all of this fully, I don't think they did, they understood enough to believe God and look for the coming of their Redeemer. You know the story. They thought it was going to be their firstborn son, Cain. It wasn't. They were mistaken. But they continued to look forward to a redeemer. You know, the, the Old Testament records a long period of preparation for this new king's coming. And again, the God of all grace was doing it. Now, God established a godly line in the midst of the world's sin. A line in which his name was remembered. And faith in the coming Redeemer was kept alive. Seth. We have a Seth here this morning. Seth, the third son of Adam and Eve, was the first of this new line. From him came others. 
You know, I think of Enoch, who walked with God, and Noah. Then there was Job, who right here at the beginning of redemptive history knew he would see his Redeemer walk upon the earth. That's nothing less than a prophecy of the Incarnation. Later came Abraham, then Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons, the twelve patriarchs of Israel. Then there were priests like Aaron, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, godly kings like David. And just before the birth of Jesus, there were people like Zechariah and Elizabeth, Joseph and Mary, Simeon, Anna, and others, all of whom looked forward to Christ's coming. Now, Hebrews 11.39 says that these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. All these people were saved by grace. They were part of the preparation for God's kingdom. But John tells us the true light that gives light to every man was only then coming into the world. Well, he came into the world living a sinless life, and very soon he was killed by this world. The death of the Lord Jesus for sin is the very basis and center of God's kingdom of grace. So we shouldn't really be surprised to find Paul thinking of this specifically. As he unfolds this illustration here in Romans 5, verse 21, he says that grace reigns through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, I think his words remind us that grace doesn't mean the setting aside of God's law. It doesn't mean the waving of justice. You know, as if God were saying, hey, you know, it's all right. Go ahead and sin. Doesn't matter. I forgive you. Well, sin does matter. It's a terrible thing. You know, this passage, verse 21, says that it leads to death in this life and death in the age to come. God does not overlook sin. He deals with it. Christ died for sin. God counts Christ's divine and utterly perfect righteousness as ours. Well, the kingdom... You know, as it moves along and grows, needs citizens, God is in the business of providing subjects for his kingdom of grace. How does he do that? Well, you know, theologians speak of something called the Ordo Salutis. Most of you in here have heard of that. Or the Order of Salvation. It refers to the steps that God takes to bring citizens into his kingdom. Here's how it works. First, there's a thing called foreknowledge. It means that God takes saving notice of these would-be citizens of his kingdom. He sets his favor on them. He gives them grace. Then there's something called predestination or election. This means that in the eternal counsels of his will... God has determined to save them by bringing them to Christ. Then there's something called effectual calling. 
This is the call of the gospel, which actually produces a proper believing response in God's elect. It's like, it's, it's like the calling of Lazarus, which brought forth with God brought him forth from the tomb. He brought him from death back into life. The next step is something called regeneration. It's a spiritual quickening or making alive. Everything that becomes good in us flows from that. The next step is repentance and faith. We turn from sin and believe on Jesus Christ. We've been made alive. We've, we've been regenerated. Then comes sanctification. That's this new life in Christ. Within the believer, it works. works itself out. It's an increasing growth of holiness and good works. And the last step is glorification, in which you and I are made into the very image of Jesus Christ, without sin, forever. And that happens only when Christians die and go to heaven. That's awesome. Think of that. I cannot imagine any more glorious unfolding of the kingdom of grace toward you and me than that. Dear ones, this is the power of God on display, providing for, and then actually saving us who apart from it would certainly be lost. Again, it's a power. You know, if grace were only a handout, if it were were only an offer to help, we would perish. The only reason we're saved is that grace first provides the way. It provides the way of salvation and then actually reaches out to turn us from sin, to quicken us, to draw us into salvation. That's a great power. It's all of God. You know, what a, what a marvelous unfolding, you know, of the kingdom of grace throughout the history of our, of our world. You know, and if you know your Bible, and you do, I know, there were times when it looked like it would end. But God always intervened to provide a way to keep it moving forward. You know, tracing that in the Bible is exciting. You know, how God kept, how he protected, you know, godly lives to keep the godly line moving forward. But that's a subject for another sermon, and we'll have to go on. Okay. So, what about the nature of the reign of God's grace? What can we say about it? You know, what does it look like? Well, let me just say a couple of things about it. I think I mentioned this on your handout. The first thing we, we can say is that the reign of grace is bountiful. Look back at verse 20. That's what that verse says. It says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. God's grace never ends. It doesn't. It's overflowing with benefits. It's never odious. You know, I think D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it best. You know, what he said, it's, it's so on target that maybe we ought to memorize it. You know, he said grace always gives, whereas sin always takes away. Grace always gives, sin always takes away. You know, sin 
this tyrannical king, he says the exact opposite. He says something different. He tells us that he'll give us all we've ever wanted and that grace will deprive us of all that. Sin says, you know, look at these Christians. They never have any fun. Look at all the things they can't do. And all too often, all too often, like the prodigal son, <laughs> we buy into that siren song. We listen to this bad king. We take our inheritance and journey into a far country where we don't have to listen to this good king's advice. We don't have to respond to his will. And what do we do there? We blow our assets on wild living. We waste our inheritance. And when we come to the end of our days, it's all gone. Sin has taken it all. And we find, as the prodigal did, that no one will give us anything. In the end, you know, when we look to King Sin, whom we followed, and ask for his help, he laughs at us as he reaches out to snatch away even life itself. Dear ones, follow King Sin, and he will rob you of your innocence. He will rob you of your character. Follow King Sin, and he will wither away your health. Follow King Sin, and he will turn to ashes even the common, precious things of life. The things like friendship, love, laughter, the innocence of children, hope, contentment. Follow King Sin, and he will usher you to damnation and laugh as you stagger through the door. But follow the king whose name is Grace. Things will be altogether different. Grace sees you staggering. He comes alongside to help you and bear you up. Now, grace sees us destitute. And he pours the inexhaustible riches of Christ and the Father into our laps. Grace sees us dying. He imparts eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is marvelous. Grace says, what do you need? Tell me. What do you need? Tell me anything at all. And then grace provides for. He provides for that need in accord with God's perfect wisdom, invincible power, and unlimited supply. Indeed, grace is, grace is bountiful. But it's not only bountiful, it's also invincible. You know, some of you may be thinking, may be saying, can you really say that, Stu? No, is grace really invincible? You know, it doesn't seem that way to me. In this life, it's not always true that good triumphs over evil. Can anything as good as grace really triumph in the end? How can we know that in the end, sin will not somehow still be there to snatch away God's bountiful gifts out of our hands? Well, I, I suppose that would be possible if it were only my grace or if it were only your grace that we're talking about. Sin would probably 
take away the good gifts. We, can, we can't stand against king sin. But praise God, it's not my grace. It's not your grace that's reigning. It's the grace of God. And God is the Almighty One. Who or what can stand against God or His purposes? You know, I want to read a passage. Just, just, just consider again this morning what Paul says a little bit later in this wonderful letter to the Romans over in Romans 8. Listen to what he says. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Listen to this. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear ones, never doubt it. In the end, King Grace will prevail. He will triumph over King's sin. God's grace is indeed invincible. You know, we're going to sing a great hymn here in just a minute by Charles Wesley. He has it exactly right. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. There are no triumphs anywhere like these triumphs. There are none so happy. There are none so certain. Dear ones, let grace triumph in you. Yield to it. Yield to the grace of God in Christ. Open your arms to grace. Grace will draw you to the winning side. Well, let me just sum up. I've got some more to say, but uh, <laughs> I want to give you I want to give you two principles which are exemplified in this concluding verse of chapter five. In, in fact, it's exemplified in the entire paragraph, uh, which are important for us, I think, to take away. So I'll conclude with this. You know, the first principle. I think I put this on your handout, is that God takes sin seriously. You know, throughout the Bible, and I think, you know, you've experienced this in the world around us, men and women are constantly trying to minimize sin and its consequences. But the Bible constantly emphasizes the seriousness of sin. And I think this text dramatically illustrates this, doesn't it? Now, just, just look at the devastation. One sin brought to the human race. Adam's sin brought about his own death. But it also condemned all mankind to death. Adam's sin brought us all down. 
Now, who can say that sin is not serious? You know, most people today, they wouldn't even call what Adam did a sin. You know, look what he, look what he did. It's just a little picadillo. It's a misdemeanor. It's something like spitting on the sidewalk, jaywalking, speeding. Adam simply ate the fruit of a tree. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal was that God had told Adam not to do that. God does intend to take sin seriously. You know, an act which men would hardly even think of sin today became the cause of man's downfall. God takes sin seriously, and so should you and I. So that's one thing, principle I think we can get out of this text. There's a second principle, and I think it's that our identity today is found either in Adam or it's found in Christ. You know, we said both Adam and Christ were appointed by God to be representatives for other men and women. God appointed them to stand for others. You know, theologians talk about both of them becoming federal heads, if you will, of particular bodies of people. Each is the source of what can be called either the old humanity or the new humanity. The old humanity is the race as it stands apart from Jesus Christ, following sin, heading for destruction. It's what we see today in the world around us. The new humanity is all redeemed people who've been saved by Jesus Christ. And the entire human race is divided into these two humanities by virtue of their relationship to these two representatives. You know, maybe we can look at this principle of our identity in either Adam or Christ in another way. You know, this passage in Romans 5, I think, explains the words of our Lord spoken to Nicodemus over in John 3 better than any other New Testament text. You remember Nicodemus Remember, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, remember, the Apostle John introduces Nicodemus three ways. He introduces him as a Pharisee. He calls him a ruler of the Jews. And Jesus says that he's a teacher of Israel. It's all over in John 3. Now, with those credentials, those are pretty good credentials. Nicodemus, this renowned teacher, he had, he had to have taught about Adam. He had to have taught about his fall and the downfall of the human race. But if, if, if he was like the rest of the Pharisees, and he was, he trusted in his physical descent from Abraham and in the possession of the law to save him. Now, what a shock! <laughs> It must have been for Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this teacher of the law, when Jesus told him that entrance into God's kingdom of grace required a second birth. First of all, it must have confused him. It had to have confused him. Yet that expression, born again, should not have been a foreign thought to Nicodemus. It should have caused him, I think as it does us, to think in those terms in which Paul speaks of here. 
in Romans 5. How was it that the human race fell into sin? Well, Paul tells us here that it was on account of Adam. Nicodemus should have seen that. He should have known that. He should have taught that. How did each individual fall under sin? It was simply by being born. The birth made one a son of Adam and thus a sinner. We inherited Adam's sin when we were born. And as I said, the solution to the guilt of sin encountered at death was another birth, a second birth by God's grace. To be saved, men must exchange their identity with Adam, by which we're condemned, to an identity with Christ, by which we're justified by which we're saved. As physical birth was the source of man's sin, so another birth is the solution to man's sin. This Pharisee should have seen that, but he didn't. You see, this is what the gospel is all about. This is the essence. This is the guts of covenant theology. Jesus Christ came to earth To offer men a cure for the curse, which Adam's sin brought upon all mankind. So you see, I think the gospel, the gospel confronts each of us with a choice. Will you remain in Adam, subject to the penalty of death? Or will you accept God's gracious provision for a new identity in Christ? You see, being born again is simply our Lord's way of speaking of that point in a person's life when they acknowledge their own sin, their own guilt, and the just sentence upon them of death. It's ceasing to trust in what you are and clinging to who Jesus Christ is. It's finding our identity in Christ rather than in Adam. It's turning from condemnation to justification, from death to life, from Adam to Christ. And so the question that I press on you this morning is, have you been born again? You see, it was necessary for Nicodemus, a famous religious leader, teacher. It was necessary for the Romans. It was necessary for the Apostle Paul. It's necessary for you. It's necessary for me. Will you choose life or death? Will you choose sin or grace? Adam or Christ? You know, there's no more important decision you'll ever make than that. The salvation which God has offered in Jesus Christ, it's not automatic. It has to be received. I pray that if you haven't already done that today, you'll do it. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to bless these words to our hearts this morning. Uh, May they, by your power, lead all of us to choose life over death, choose grace over sin, choose Christ over Adam. God, only you can do this. We can't do it on our own. So we ask that you would make it so. And if you do, when you do, if you have, we will give you all the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.